The point is that in moving forward, as you say, Sean, as we seek to make disciples of all people, which is our mission, we need to stop interpreting people's experiences of same-sex attraction through this historically constructed concept called sexual orientation. Welcome to another episode of the Prepared to Answer podcast. I'm your host, Sean Walker, along with Scott Steen. Our goal, as always, is to discuss, analyze, and dissect current cultural issues from a biblical worldview. Today is Tuesday, June 9th, and seeing as June is widely regarded as Pride Month for those in the LGBT community, we thought we should dive into discussing the subject of sexual orientation and sexual identity. Seems like a lot to tackle in one episode. Scott, where do you want to begin? There is a lot, although it seems as if the tragic killing of George Floyd down in the States by a policeman and the subsequent social and racial tensions that have erupted, it seems like it's almost eclipsed the pride emphasis of June. But it's still there. And of course, it's something people are talking about. And I know it's something that we think about. For sure. For sure. And and our kids at school uh, taught about sexual orientation, uh, things like that. They're coming home with questions. Definitely all the time. Um, Yeah. And and maybe not so too with the COVID situation is probably not as... uh, you know, in your, not necessarily in your face, but as as much as we would normally get in a in a June. You know what? That's true. Uh, with with COVID on top of that, it seems like a lot of these issues have settled into the background, mm-hmm. and yet I still find that you know overall they're there. Oh yeah, and they've been there for so long. It's almost become like background noise to the way that we think about things, right? And the way we think in our culture that sexuality it informs virtually everything we think about and talk about, and especially in this whole area of identity formation, which you know I've been writing about that lately. It's something we talk about a fair bit here, prepared to answer. Because identity formation is such a huge subject in our culture, broadly speaking, and I think it's something as Christians we need to be speaking about as well, because the Bible has a lot to say about it. The way we think about that and the way the world does is so very different. But it just seems like this whole subject of sexual identity has been so ingrained in our minds over the last decade, especially. Your kids and my kids, Sean, have grown up with this. You know, we look back to, in terms of our Canadian context, it was 2015 when it really hit the fan when the government in our province introduced the curriculum that really started teaching these core concepts about sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, sexual identity, as part of health education. Well, that's now five years ago. That's almost half of some of our kids' elementary teaching. And, And if I think back to when I was growing up, I would never think of myself as heterosexual or homosexual or anything. No. That was just not part of what we thought or, or what we talked about or, or anything. You know what? Maybe we just didn't see it. It certainly wasn't on my radar as much because maybe it wasn't in the forefront of popular culture. But it certainly has saturated the everyday thinking of our culture in a very short period of time. Um, Janelle Williams Paris wrote a book called The End of Sexual Identity. She's an evangelical Christian anthropologist. Her book was interesting. I can't say I agreed with all of her conclusions. But she made some interesting observations in the introduction to her book. She said, on a personal level, we're told that our inner sexual feelings are the measure of our true selves. That by knowing, exploring, and expressing our sexual desires, we become our real selves. And that was her observation of our present cultural setting, right? Just the way that we think in culture about identity. So we want to talk about this whole subject of sexual orientation, but really in how that impacts our understanding of or our formation of identity. 
and how, well, sometimes we might think, oh, sexual orientation, that's a very clinical term. It's descriptive in expressing the prevailing kinds of feelings or the dominant kinds of feelings that people have in terms of their sexual attractions. It has grown to be so much more than that, that it's grown to become, as Paris mentioned, this broader sense of self-identity. And Sean, here's a good illustration of what I mean by this. Andrew Sullivan is a conservative Catholic writer, and he identifies himself as a gay man, although he would subscribe to a Catholic belief about human sexuality. He says, being gay is not about sex as such. He says, fundamentally, it's about one's core emotional identity. So the umbrella of our self-understanding that sexual orientation is covering has grown to the point where I think sexual orientation is a conceptual framework that as Christians, we need to jettison. We need to stop using it as a framework for understanding human nature and even human sexuality. Because what it has become is this overarching umbrella concept which really defines human nature. And if you think that's overstating it a little bit, uh, here's, uh, here's a comment from a contemporary gay activist named Christian de la Huerta. He says, sexuality encompasses or imbues all, that's my emphasis, all other aspects of being human. It is an integral component of who we are. So in the popular mindset, sex becomes everything. That is the organizing framework for understanding human nature and understanding our own identity. So if I think back to, like I said, when I was younger, this was not part of the conversation, right? This was not what made us who we were. So, so how did we move so quickly from that? How we got here in the popular mindset, it's been very short, but I would say the ideas that have got us here have been growing for probably the last 150 years. So that you're right, when you and I were growing up, we didn't think about ourselves in those terms. I was having a conversation with a parent not that long ago, a Christian parent who was talking about a discussion, almost an argument they were having with their teen about the Bible's teaching about homosexuality. And their teen objected, taking exception to the idea that the Bible would prohibit homosexuality or call it a sin. And their response was, listen, shouldn't people have the right to be who they are? And there's that new idea that our sexual orientation defines us. It seems like we've arrived here fairly quickly, but I would say that it's, been, it's taken about 150 years and I think that it's important as Christians that we understand that where we are today is the development of a series of ideas that have been coming for some time. As far as this whole concept of sexual orientation, if you want to look for the genesis of the first idea of sexual orientation, you go back to the 1800s and Sigmund Freud. What's interesting about Freud was that he was a committed Darwinist. So he, he very much latched on to Darwin's evolutionary theory. He called religion a universal obsessional neurosis. He saw religion as something that people needed to be cured from. And so he certainly rejected any notions of biblical morality when it came to sexuality. And so in embracing Darwin and rejecting any kind of Christian worldview, what Freud wanted to do is he wanted to conceive of a new way of understanding human nature by studying human behavior in the mind. And where he really honed in was in the whole area of sexuality. Of course, speaking in evolutionary terms, sexuality is key because it's essential for survival. So he saw sex as very much core to understanding human nature because it was absolutely core to evolutionary survival. And Rosaria Butterfield, looking back at Freud, points out that Freud wanted to reconceive of sex as being the foundational drive that determines and defines human identity itself. 
Butterfield says, with Freud, sexuality moved from being a verb, that is something that's practiced, to becoming a noun, that is something a person is. And she says, and with this grammatical move from verb to noun, a new concept of humanity was born, the idea that we are oriented or framed by our sexual desires. Now, I just want to pause for a second and point out the significance here so that people don't miss it. The concept of sexual orientation was born not out of some kind of new scientific discovery. Science had not found some new evidence about humanity or human nature that previously we didn't have. Rather, science began interpreting the evidence using a different set of assumptions based upon a fundamental shift in worldview. From the worldview of the Bible, where humanity and human nature are the product of a divine creator making humanity in his image, to a naturalistic evolutionary worldview that sees man as simply the product of unguided, unintended, natural, physical forces. There's some influential figures in scholarly history, one of them being Michael Foucault. He was a French historian, but also a philosopher. He looked back on the historical context of Freud and the development of the whole idea of sexual orientation. And he saw that yeah, this was indeed the time where the understanding of sexual orientation was born. Here's something he said looking back at that moment in time. He said, homosexuality appeared as one of the forms of sexuality when it was transposed from the practice of sodomy, okay, there's the verb, something that's done, to a kind of interior androgyny. In other words, he says, a hermaphrodism of the soul. He said the sodomite had been a temporary aberration. The homosexual was now a species. Right. So realizing that at the time in European and Western thought, the Christian worldview was being set aside. So creational categories of man and woman and the sexual interrelationship that they have in the covenant of marriage and in God's creation design, that was all being moved aside. And in its place was this kind of pseudo-scientific categorization and understanding of human nature. Now, as a result, Freud's work and all the rest, the scientific thinkers of the day realized that without those biblical categories, they still recognized the need to keep respectable social boundaries in place. And so these categories of sexual orientation were conceived of as a way of classifying people according to what would have been seen as psychologically normal versus abnormal behaviors. So heterosexual was understood as psychologically normal behavior. Homosexual or a homosexual orientation was seen as abnormal. And so rather than the biblical categories, these artificial scientific categories were created so that traditional morality could continue on. But what Foucault recognized was that in that move, sexuality now was no longer just something that people did. It was part of their nature. And here's what he says in reference to that. He says, and I quote, nothing that went into the homosexual's total composition was unaffected by his sexuality. It was everywhere present in him, at the root of all his actions, because it was their insidious and indefinitely active principle. Now, he isn't saying that was a good thing. In the mind of those who framed it, they looked upon homosexuality as a psychological disorder and the person who committed those acts as a disordered person. And so what Foucault understood was that this was the historical shift where in a biblical understanding, sinful men or women would commit homosexual acts. 
now homosexual became a type of person, right? It wasn't, those weren't the acts they were committing. This was their nature that they were living out. And so as he says, a new species was born. So that would be where the shift happened, uh, that it became part of our nature. Right. Would that be right? Right. Which we take for granted as a simple, well, simply everybody knows that. It's core to who we are. But what we don't realize is that that move was made not because scientists discovered some new fact about human beings. It was made because of a fundamental shift in worldview. But then it's somehow been translated that it is a scientific discovery, that it is scientific, that this is our nature, this is who we are. Yeah. You know, when I think about that move made, and I think about where we are today, in terms of the way that we view and treat people, whether or not they are born with or acquire a strong inclination to be sexually attracted to the same sex, I think at least from a Christian perspective, one of the positive outcomes in the culture movement we've seen is that Christians understand it's not okay to mistreat or to wrongly label or judge people who are homosexuals. And I think that one of the negative outcomes of that historical shift that Foucault wrote about. Since the broader culture was predominantly Christian, I think it justified for the Christian culture and therefore the church to look at homosexuals as a particularly deviant kind of person. Not just to look at the sin itself, but to judge the person and to identify the person through the lens of their sin. Right. So we couldn't point to any scripture that would deem homosexual sin worse than other sins. But perception-wise, that's, in at least in my experience, that's almost been the way. And, and this is fascinating to know kind of the genesis of that thought within the church, right? That, you know, talking to other Christians or, or even just a general message from the church that homosexuality is this sin that is kind of outside of all other sins. It's one of those worst sins, but yet we can't point to scripture to say that, can we? What comes to mind to me is the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, where he talks about how the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So biblically speaking, Yes, homosexuality as a behavior or as a lifestyle is categorized as a sinful lifestyle or a sinful behavior, along with the catalog of all the other sinful behaviors. But nowhere is someone ever identified as a particularly sinful kind of person over against someone else to create this classification of people in terms of sinners, really <laughs> sinners, <laughs> right. and then the horrible, horrible sin, right? Right. That's yeah. not a biblical understanding of, of, uh, of humanity. So in light of that, often the church is seen as part of society that has done harm to the LGBT community. I was reading an article from the Washington Post uh, that was talking about ex-gay ministries and the fact that uh, they're on the decline. But what was interesting in the articles was this perception that there was harm done by Christian churches and ministries, that we are endangering the lives of young Christians that may be identifying as homosexual. So a couple of the stats that they used, young Christians are two times more likely to commit suicide if pressured to change by their parents. Uh, they're three times more likely than the average young Christian uh, if pressured by therapists or church 
church leaders. So what does that say for us as Christians going forward in light of those stats and that perception within society that we're actually doing more harm than good? Well, first, Sean, I would say that we'll never be able to escape the criticism of culture, so long as we remain true to biblical truth. The world hated Jesus for the truth he told about our sin and guilt before God. He told us that without a rescue plan, we were condemned under God's judgment, and he declared himself to be that rescue plan. God sent Jesus to save us from our own sin. So as long as we proclaim this message, we will never meet with the world's approval. Second, to the extent that people have been harmed by the church, we need to admit where real harm has been done, and and we need to repent for that. But again, the problem is that because the sexual orientation framework for understanding human nature and identity is so ingrained in our cultural mindset, really anything other than affirming and celebrating a person's self-declared sexual orientation or sexual identity will be seen as doing harm. I think there's no way we'll get around that. And now that anti-conversion laws have been passed, where the definition of conversion therapy is so broad that it could include even just praying with someone for God to remove unwanted same-sex attraction, obviously we're going to need to be very careful as Christians in how we conduct ourselves. But in terms of moving forward, I want to return to the issue of sexual orientation and identity. As I said at the beginning, I believe that Christians need to abandon the sexual orientation framework for understanding human nature and identity. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not denying that people experience strong and persistent and involuntary sexual attraction to members of the same sex. Our point hasn't been to deny these very real experiences or or dismiss the need for love and grace for anyone who has them. The point is that in moving forward, as you say, Sean, as we seek to make disciples of all people, which is our mission, we need to stop interpreting people's experiences of same-sex attraction through this historically constructed concept called sexual orientation. Doing so, I believe, keeps us bound to understanding our nature and identity according to the earthbound categories of our fallen sinful flesh. But when we put our faith in Christ, he, first of all, he gives us a new nature. And uh, this is Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So when we come to faith in Jesus, we no longer conceive of ourselves or frame our self-understanding in terms of our nature in sinful fallen categories. Rather, we understand now that we are something that God has created that's new. And along with our new nature, God also establishes for us a new identity. And this is not in the way that we view ourselves. It's not in the way that others view us. But it's in the, it's in the new way that God now relates himself to us as Father and us to himself as his very own adopted children through faith in Jesus. And here's what John says in John 1.12. He says, yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so in Jesus, God gives us the gift of his own Holy Spirit to dwell within us. It's the Spirit of God who first makes us into this new creation and also gives us this new identity. And I just want to close with what Paul says in Romans 8.15 about God sending and giving to us through faith the gift of his Holy Spirit. He says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. 
and by him we call God Dad. This podcast has been a ministry of Prepared to Answer. Our mission at Prepared to Answer is to help prepare, equip, and encourage the Church of Jesus Christ to grow in confidence of faith by teaching Christians to think like Jesus. To access more resources to help you begin understanding life and the world around you with the mind of Jesus, visit our website at www.preparedtoanswer.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at at prepared to answer. Or contact us directly by email at info at prepared to May the Lord bless and keep you.